This episode of Case Acquaint contains disturbing and graphic material which may not be appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, welcome back to Case Acquaint. You have found episode 20. We have some updates for you this week. Thanks to everyone who shared Carl Seaman's picture and his story. It appears that he wasn't kidnapped or anything worse, and for that we're truly grateful. We know it's not easy to be a soldier, especially at Fort Bragg, which is such a large base. We're going to be taking down the audio of that episode because since he's been found, we don't want to waste any of y'all's time by having to listen to something that's already been resolved. Next, we have some more good news to give you about Calvin Blackshire, whose story you would have heard in our I-95 series. I think that was episode 3, dealing with Cumberland County, North Carolina. Calvin was gunned down in front of a Fayetteville, North Carolina, Motel 6. Some fool had the nerve to live stream his last moments on Facebook. His family was devastated not only by losing Calvin and wanting the killer caught, but also because of the heartless actions of the people live-streaming his death. Anyway, the good news is that four people are being charged in connection with his murder. We have Adam Golden, Elvin Morrison, Iona Thomas, and Yashika West. Now, they haven't caught everybody yet, but at least these people have been charged. They might as well turn themselves in so we can get this process underway, and the community can rest knowing they're all safely put away where they deserve to be, and Calvin's child can grow up not having to worry about it either. Also, we're going to post their pictures on our website. We know there are lots of you North Carolinians out there, so be on the lookout. Finally, we want to, and we hope you do too, extend our wishes to Rachel Galbraith's loved ones. This might not be a great week for them, seeing as how, on this week of 2014, Rachel was savagely attacked in front of her three little rescue dogs and her ex-boyfriend's cat that he abandoned. That episode was, I believe it was 14, if I'm not mistaken. So this week, we want to wish Rachel's loved ones peace, and we continue to hope that the detective in charge can open up that freezer and take her case out of the cold. There is no reason for this case to be ignored and we want to see Rachel's killer brought to justice. A killer is walking free right now amongst the rest of us, and as you remember, this is a coward who could sneak up behind somebody and beat them to death. Also, we're hoping that those who benefited financially from Rachel's murder find it in their conscience to turn that money over to the family, the people who truly cared about her. So that's it for updates. Now, on with our story for this week. It's another unsolved murder, and if authorities are going to find the killer, they better hurry up because it's been almost 45 years since the torture and murder of Teresa Sue Hilt. Teresa Hilt was known to everyone as Tess, and that's what we're going to call her from now on. Tess was the only child of Stanley and Mildred Hilt of Chillicothe, Missouri, 
who doted on their daughter. Stanley worked for the State of Missouri Highway Maintenance Department, and Mildred was a real estate agent. We're going to post some old newspaper clippings of random announcements in their hometown newspaper from different times in Tessa's life. You'll see things like the announcement of her sixth birthday party. It's pretty clear that Tessa's parents must have been very proud of her. And in her own right, Tess matured into a special young woman. By all accounts, she had a beautiful singing voice, and she often sang at public and private events. She played the trumpet in the marching band, and she played piano. Tess was not only musically inclined, she was energetic, intelligent, and outgoing. Throughout her school career, both before and during college, Tess acted in plays, one of which was You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, in which Tess played my favorite character, Peppermint Patty. Both in high school and in undergrad, she edited the yearbook. And over the years, her small-town newspaper chronicled some of Tess's achievements. She always seemed to take top honors. She was a baton twirling champion in 1963, among other years, and she was always on the honor roll. She won music, 4-H, and poetry competitions. There's no doubt that Tess was destined for greatness. Tess graduated college in 1973 with a degree in music education. In May, she presented a recital in which she sang selections in English, Italian, and German. In July, she attended and helped out with the reception for the wedding of some friends in Warrensburg, Missouri. She also briefly visited Colorado that summer. For the next academic year, she returned to campus at the Northwest Missouri State University to pursue a master's degree. She lived in a basement apartment at what was called the College Gardens Complex, located right next to campus. Nowadays, this same apartment complex is called Horizons West. On August 3rd of 1973, she was doing the things that she would normally do. During the early part of the day, she helped a friend named Ed paint his apartment. He lived in the same complex, but a different building. Then the two of them went to a party together. After that, it's said that she accompanied Ed back to his apartment between the hours of 10 p.m. and 11 p.m. At approximately 2 a.m., Tess was said to have left Ed's apartment just as two of his other friends arrived and she said she was going to go back home to her own apartment, which was about 50 or 60 feet away from his. After that, nobody claims to have ever seen Teresa Sue Hilt alive again. Ed had to work in the morning, so he showed up on time for his shift at a grocery store. He had plans with Tess for that evening, so he says he attempted to reach her several times by phone to firm up these plans. But finally, he decided to walk over to her apartment to check on her, since she wasn't answering the phone. And that is when Ed says he entered the basement apartment through an unlocked door and found the brutalized body of Tess. Tess's body was lying face down on the bed and covered with a bed sheet. The police were called, and they began their investigation. Beneath that bedsheet, Tess was totally nude. 
It's been reported that her wrists had been tied together at some point with shoelaces, but they were later taken off in order to pose her arms. Her left arm was at her side, and the right arm was bent and resting on her own back, and then placed inside the right hand was a four-inch paring knife from her kitchen. There were several stab wounds. One, a stab wound to her left chest area, was kind of a meticulous attack because it was at least eight jabs of the knife in the same puncture. Also, what seems like a bit of overkill or disorganization in some of the other stabbing behavior because there were several puncture wounds in the uterine area and apparently some elsewhere like on her arm. There's also what appeared to be a bite wound on her left breast. She had a pair of her own pantyhose tied tightly around her neck. In her throat were strands of her own long blonde hair. With the evidence and the scene of Tessa's murder were both equally puzzling. It appeared to police that even though Tess had struggled with her attacker, the scene was surprisingly tidy and had been cleaned up. The knife had been cleaned as well. There was hair near the end of the bed that belonged to someone else, and this person, it was determined, suffered from an inherited condition called manilothrix, which would have been a great clue at the time, because it isn't something that's easily treated, and it gives the hair a distinctive look. There would likely be premature hair loss or thinning. The hair that remained might have appeared brittle and uneven due to breakage. Even now, there are a few options for treatment, and none of them appear to be very effective on every sufferer. So that would be a good clue. Other evidence found included a paper napkin with blood on it. Outside the apartment, a few bits of evidence were also found. Some of her traveler's checks from one of her recent trips were found in the parking lot, which is located on the south side of the building. Her wallet was also later found near some old and no longer used railroad tracks, and those are also on the south side of the building. We're going to create a little map for your reference if you're interested in checking it out. It'll be on the blog post dedicated to this episode on our website, caseacquaint.com. One thing to note also about the scene and what people later told the police, and that is that back then, the complex wasn't known for being high risk. Many people didn't lock their apartment doors, and Tess was one of those people, according to those who knew her, who never locked her door. One curious thing to come out later as well was about the thesis Tess was working on. Tess's parents later told the press that her thesis, along with all of her research for it, was missing. It was never collected as evidence, and it wasn't found in her apartment among her belongings when Stanley and Mildred Hilt arrived in a borrowed truck to pack up Tess's belongings and take them home. Mildred had seen this work not long before the murder when she had visited Tess at her apartment, and it wasn't just a small folder, it was a big, thick stack of papers. The subject of Tess's thesis was alcoholism on campus, and while we can only guess what impact alcohol played in Tess's life, people who knew her said she didn't ever drink much. If she drank, it would have been one drink the entire night if she was at a party. Also, when Tess was 18 years old, she was in a car accident in which she and her passenger sustained minor injuries. The driver of the other car was given the ticket, and he was apparently drinking while driving. So there's a possibility that may have contributed to Tess's interest in the subject of alcohol abuse. Tess's mom would later say how proud she had been of the research Tess had done 
and her parents strongly suspected that her research might have contained information about people that had alcohol or drug problems, something they may have wished to hide, maybe. Tess had been interviewing many people, and in order to do that, she had been spending time with folks her parents might have felt had unsavory past. It was also said that a group of hippies who sort of wandered around doing drugs and living off people had been kindly given refuge by Tess in the past. Could they have had anything to do with her death? Police were not able to find these mysterious hippies in order to interview them. It's also worth mentioning that none of the neighbors claimed to have heard any noises like fighting or arguing that night or early in the morning, even though the walls in the building were said to be very thin and they allowed noise to pass through easily. Tess's body was collected and sent off for an autopsy, and this is when we start to see the lack of professionalism and shoddy investigatory methods come into play. The impact on this case is unmistakable. The medical examiner did the postmortem at the beginning of the investigation, and then he went on vacation for a week, so that created a delay until he returned to finish the autopsy. He concluded that Tess had not been raped, but there were hints that there was some type of sexually related assault that had been done to her. We don't really know all about what that was. We do know that her breast had been bitten. Different reports gave Tess's cause of death as being due to different things. One listed the cause of death as being stabs to the lungs, which they said caused the lungs to fill with blood, and that would have had the same effect as drowning. Another report said they were told the cause of death to be a collapsed lung, and that would have been from air getting into the chest cavity. Another report said the cause of death was from stab wounds to the heart. Statistically, most homicides from stab wounds are due to the heart or its valves being damaged from the stabbing. This is usually because of the proximity of the killer to the victim, usually on top of them or standing right in front of them. Most people being right-handed will naturally stab the left side of the torso. And while a stab wound involving the lung or lung cavity is serious and can be fatal, a stab wound to the heart is almost always fatal and very quick. One way they should have been able to immediately tell the difference between a collapsed lung and a lung having been, as they characterized it, flooded with blood, would have been if Tess had coughed up blood. But we don't know if she did, and despite the conflicting information given at different times, Tess died from the repeated stabbing in her chest area. She would have died quickly if it had been in the heart, and her suffering wouldn't have been as prolonged. This information is not everything that was found in the autopsy because it was never officially released to the public. So if anything else was found, it hasn't been formally explained. So the autopsy was delayed for reasons unrelated to the investigation, but the rest of the investigation continued. Over the following months, police interviewed about 200 people, and they took fingerprints of 150 people. They did ask some people to take lie detector tests, mainly young men Tess had spent time with or perhaps dated. It was reported that Ed did take a lie detector test and that he did pass it to the police's satisfaction. They seemed to clear him pretty quickly. 
Some of the things police found out while they were interviewing all these people were reported on just days after the murder, and then there were no updates about these reports. Neighbors in another building said that several apartments in the complex had been entered recently, and a young woman told police that she had been followed repeatedly by a guy lately, and she thought he'd been going into her apartment while she was away. This sounds like something that should have been followed up on, but we can't say whether or not it was. At the beginning of the investigation, the local police did what they could, but this is a small college town police force that wasn't used to having to perform homicide investigations, and they didn't have special training on homicides. What happens many times in situations like this is that a smart police chief would call in the state police or the SBI if the state has an SBI, and it does appear that at some point the Missouri state troopers were helping out with this case. And of course, the county attorney was also involved in some capacity. But during those initial months and years, the case was handled by the Maryville Police Department. And the guy in charge, the detective, well, he decided almost from the very beginning that Tess Hilt was killed by a woman. Now, why would he think that? Well, first of all, he wasn't all that experienced with homicides. That's the first thing. Also, he seemed to rely on his own intuition and maybe his own personal perspective on human behavior. Because when asked, he freely told a reporter how he thought this all went down. He said, Tess met her murderer on her way home from Ed's apartment. And since Tess was believed to be technically a virgin when she was murdered, which meant there wasn't any traditional sexual intercourse, and that meant to him that it must not have been a man who killed her. Also, he said a man wouldn't have cleaned up the scene as well as it had been cleaned, and a man wouldn't have covered Tessa's body with the sheet. He said, quote, It was too neat of a job to be done by a man. It's hard to fault the detective since he hadn't the experience or the training to handle this type of case, and it's clear they tried to do a thorough investigation at first. It's just unfortunate that they didn't entertain more possibilities from the beginning or ask for help and or perspective from other more experienced agencies until much later. But let's move on to other theories. Some of them have actually come up over the years. There was talk of an older man, some say a professor, who Tess had apparently claimed to have been in love with, but she wouldn't share his name. So that led to more conjecture, and perhaps this older man's wife was jealous, and it was she who murdered Tess. Others say that maybe Tess was going to expose this older man over a possible relationship they had, and the man didn't want the secret to be known. After all, she had told other people that she was afraid of this man. Some feel like that's kind of a far-fetched theory, because since the autopsy revealed that Tess was a virgin, they reasoned that it would be hard for her to come between a married couple if Tess hadn't even slept with the man. Then there were the suspicions of Tess's male friends in the guys she had dated. Some think that the attack itself shows evidence of extreme anger against Tess as a woman, hence the stab wounds to her uterus area and the bite on her breast, plus a fixation with bondage since her nylons were tied around her neck tightly, but it wasn't what killed her. This jilted suitor theory might also explain why she was covered up, 
sort of an act of someone who was ashamed of what they had just done and made a half-hearted attempt to place the blame on Tess, almost like they were saying she did this to herself by placing the knife in her own hand. If this theory has merit, there would be no shortage of candidates since Tess had spent the last few years making friends, socializing, and was always extremely active in campus organizations and various academic and extracurricular groups. She had been a student teacher at a local high school the year before. Tess was said to be friendly to everyone, and it's been mentioned by some who knew her that her personality was such that her friendliness might be taken as a flirtation by someone with less refined social skills, or who may have liked her and hoped she also liked him. Tess was a very pretty young woman, and absolutely had admirers, there's no doubt about that. There are also those who insist that Tess's murder might be related to other attacks on women in the region, and we'll discuss some of the characteristics of those attacks just a little bit later. By the way, police said they looked into this theory and they dismissed it. One thing is pretty clear. They never looked at Ed or her other close male friends very closely after deciding that they had nothing to do with it, and once they decided that it was a woman who killed Tess, and soon after that, the case quickly went cold. Tess's parents were, of course, not happy about the work the police were doing. They felt that they weren't kept up to date on anything, and that the police never let them know what, if any, developments were made. The Hilts had no other children. Their lives were shattered by Tess's murder. Their community raised money for a reward in case someone ever wanted to come forward with information leading to the arrest and conviction of the murderer, but it was never claimed. The Hilts hired a private investigator, but he wasn't able to make much progress either. He would get a lead, they would pass it along to the police, and then they'd never hear anything back. Tess's dad, Stanley, died in 1996. Her mom, Mildred, died in 2016. They never had any resolution to this case, and their only solace, being devout Christians, must have been that they would all be reunited again in heaven. Just because Tess's parents are gone doesn't mean it's okay to forget about this vicious murder. A guy named Michael Holmes, who was acquainted with Tess when he was a freshman at Northwest Missouri State University, never forgot Tess's murder. As he was thinking about what he might want to do after his upcoming retirement, he decided to try to help investigators reignite this case. He started an advocacy page, and over the years, from that page, a steady stream of tips have trickled in, which he, of course, passes on to the cops. And the cops can definitely use all the tips they can get. Since Tessa's murder, the Maryville Police Department has managed to lose most of the physical evidence. Current detectives assigned to the case have admitted to feeling frustrated since they don't have anything they can send off for testing. Even though the knife was wiped off, there'd still be a chance they could extract DNA off it if they still had it. But since they don't have physical evidence, they're relying on tips, and they've actually gone through and re-interviewed some of the witnesses and others as they follow up on new information. That's why they can do little besides hope someone comes forward. Earlier, we referred to some other murders in the region. If you look on the map, Maryville is situated in the middle of a triangle that's composed of St. Louis, 
Kansas City, and Omaha. It's not on a major interstate though, so it seems like unless you have some reason to be in Maryville, it's hard to imagine why you'd be there. About three hours away and one year prior to Tessa's murder, another person was strangled and stabbed in her own home. It was Karen Marie Jones, a young mom, only 16 years old, who was recently separated from her husband. She'd been strangled to death with a belt, and her body was subjected to post-mortem stabs to the abdomen. Her killer was found eventually, and it was a guy by the name of Kim Eugene Fields, a 21-year-old man recently discharged from the Air Force. For a time, it was thought by many that there must be a connection to these murders. Another rash of murders that some have said may be connected to Tessa's murder were those of the many prostitutes who were strangled and dumped by a guy who has been dubbed the Kansas City Strangler. His real name is Lorenzo Gilliard Jr., and he was convicted of murdering six women, was suspected of killing six more, and judging by the articles from the time, there were even more than that that he might have been responsible for. If you can imagine, all of these murders went unsolved and unpunished until DNA matched him to six of them. That wasn't until 2004. In the meantime, his first official sexual assault happened in 1969 when he was 19 years old, a year after he had married for the first time. He struck a 13-year-old girl over the head and raped her. In 1972, he was accused of trying to strangle a woman with a headscarf and pantyhose and raping her. His wife divorced him because she said he had been torturing her. After that, the bodies started piling up, but he was not implicated. From what's been reported on Gilliard, there are many cases that are still unresolved, which he may have been responsible for, but like Tess's case, perhaps they no longer have the physical evidence they think they need in order to get a conviction. It's pretty typical in these types of cases in which you have lots of prostitutes get murdered, the evidence is either not collected or not stored properly, which, years later, makes cold case detectives' jobs much more difficult than necessary. But this Gilliard guy, he was such a prolific criminal, he continued to rape and kill mostly unfettered from the late 60s right up till the mid-90s. He was in his 40s and was still actively preying on women. This all could have been easily avoided if Kansas City had concentrated more resources to finding the killer of the many murdered prostitutes they had on their hands. These are sad stories because many of these victims, some, still children, were totally forgotten about by the authorities and the press. Gilliard was finally sentenced to life in prison in 2007. It's doubtful that this guy murdered Tess. We don't know if he ever even visited Maryville. And honestly, he preferred to victimize very vulnerable people in easy targets like children and prostitutes. He also would take bodies to other locations and dump them. Tessa's situation was almost the opposite of the situations of most of Gilliard's victims. So, after all is said and done, who do you think might have murdered Tess? Was she attacked outside her apartment? Was she attacked while she was taking a shower? Or did her killer force her to undress? Why did the killer go to all the trouble to tie her up only to untie her hands later and pose her? Does that indicate inexperience of the killer? 
The excessive stabs to her pelvic area and numerous stabs to the chest indicate rage, but covering her up indicates shame. So was this someone who had some sort of relationship with Tess? These are only some of the questions that have been asked over the many years since Tess's murder. We still don't have a solid motive, and there's little, if any, physical evidence left to test, and the killer isn't talking. Are you from the Missouri area? Do you know anyone who was living in Maryville at the time of Tess's murder who might be capable of snapping when they feel they're provoked, insulted, or offended? Finally, I'm wondering about the evidence left scattered outside the building. Why did Tess's traveler's checks end up in the parking lot and her wallet dozens of yards away near some old railroad tracks? Some say it was an attempt to distract authorities to make them believe the killer left the scene and wouldn't be found at the apartment complex. Would this killer be capable of being so methodical? Maybe it's possible since they also took the time to clean up after themselves. Let us know what you think. As always, we're going to post links related to this case on our website, caseacquaint.com. Now, you can visit the advocacy page Michael Holmes started. It has some fascinating information, including posts from others who knew Tess as a friend. And I think what they're looking for is more engagement from people who, who might have some ideas. Finally, we'd like to thank those of you who are contacting us with suggestions for episodes and with your feedback. It's much appreciated. We've been asked how someone can support the podcast. Well, as you can tell, we don't have any ads in our podcast right now. So in order to avoid resorting to that, we've started a Patreon page, and we can be supported that way. You can also download and listen on the Radio Republic podcast platform. Other than that, simply letting your friends and family know about the show is super helpful. And as always, leaving a positive review on iTunes and anywhere else would absolutely help. For us, we want to be able to continue to bring stories to you that have not been told 50 million times already. And we want to focus on cases that need public engagement. We also try to highlight cases that have a component of education to them or that show unique strategies on the part of investigators, loved ones of the victims, or advocates. So if you know of a case like that, please contact us. We'd be happy to look into it. This brings us to the end of episode 20. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon.